And now, another episode of Radio Yesterday, brought to you by ChuckChat.com. It was another quarter mile before a sentry stepped from behind a rock, an ancient Chinese version of the infamous AK-47 in his hand. Oh, Rama Bing, he said. You have been gone a long while. Who is this? This is my sister, the young man replied. Her name is Lily. The sentry waved the two travelers on, returning to his post. As he placed his rifle on the ground, the Batman withdrew from his hiding place and continued to follow. The two travelers kept walking until they reached the rebel camp. After an exchange of greetings, they were taken to a large campfire around which soldiers, both men and women, sat. Rama Bing kept his feet, speaking in a voice firm with conviction. Atop a craggy outcropping thirty feet up from the ground, the Batman watched. He could not follow the rapid conversation, but it was clearly some form of argument. The words grew increasingly shrill. A young woman, dressed in army fatigues, rose to her feet, slowly and deliberately. She crossed the clearing to stand beside Rama Bing. In her right hand she held a pistol. Her left hand was on the shoulder of the child Rama had named Lily. The arguments continued, escalated. More of the rebels walked over to stand with Rama Bing, but the majority held their positions on the ground. Finally, Rama Bing opened both arms as though appealing to the heavens. Warrior! Warrior! Now is the time. You are needed. The soldiers stared in puzzlement, wondering why their comrade was speaking in such a strange tongue. Perhaps that is why they were so startled when the Batman dropped out of the night sky to stand before them. With his cape fully extended, the Batman looked several times the size of any man. The rebels froze in their places, spellbound at the appearance of the spirit. Some wish to attack the castle, Rama Bing said quietly. They stand with us. Others wish to continue as we have, as guerrilla fighters. What is the castle? the Batman asked. It is the den of the demon, and this is his chop, Rama Bing replied, handing over the white card with the black widow spider symbol. He is protected by the army. Now that the opium business is so difficult, it is his business, the slavery of children, that brings General Num the foreign exchange. If we stop him, the government cannot survive. You must, the Batman began to speak. One of the gorillas leaped to his feet, drew a pistol from his holster, and fired directly at the Batman's chest. The Batman's body armor absorbed most of the shock. His trained body did the rest. The man who had fired the shot looked at his pistol suspiciously, then quickly reholstered it, looking in every direction but toward the Batman. This is the warrior, Rama Bing proclaimed. He has come. With my own eyes I saw him defeat one of Batpo's ninjas as though the ninja were an infant. You cannot harm him with your guns, and he will not harm us. He is with us, my brothers and sisters. Let him speak now. The Batman stood as implacably as the surrounding mountains. His speech was so smoothly translated by Rama Bing that it seemed to the soldiers that he was speaking in their tongue. To sell a child is a violation of all humanity. Even the lowest animal will die to protect its child. Can we call ourselves a higher form when we fail to do the same? To sell children for the pleasure and profit of others is a mortal sin. It is the ultimate evil, and it is time for the evil to end. What shall we do, warrior? One of the gorillas asked, rapidly translated by Rama Bing. Can you take the castle? 
the Batman asked in return. Yes, another gorilla answered. It is guarded, but not so well. We will lose some of our people, but we could take it. The question is, could we hold it? The Batman fixed his gaze upon the speaker. You do not need to hold it. The child sex syndicate is a monolith. Once the head is gone, the body will die. Others could take his place, a woman said. Yes, the Batman replied, but it will take time for that to happen. Time for you to consolidate your positions against General Num. Time for the General to flee to Paraguay or Saudi Arabia or some other hospitable country. Time for the army to defect. Their soldiers are not patriots, they are mercenaries. Their loyalty is only as strong as their paycheck. The warrior speaks the truth, the woman who had been the first to stand with Rama being proclaimed. How many more must be lost to the evil of Les Enfants du Secret? Think of the risk, Opal, one of the young men admonished her. We are of no use to the revolution dead. I joined the movement to die, the woman named Opal snapped back, to die honorably so that those who follow me can live honorably. What good is your life? A man who does nothing is of no use to anyone. Sporadic arguments broke out all along the perimeter of the campfire. Rama Bing stood by in silence, holding the hand of the newly named Lily, waiting with the patience of a much older man. The Batman stood immobile. Even the child maintained an eerie silence. The force of the Batman's will radiated out from the center of his soul, joined in progress by the merging spirits of Rama Bing and the girl-child he now loved as he had loved his beloved Lily. Swelling with the heart of the young woman called Opal, the spiritual force was so palpable that several of the gorillas began to weep, crying for the lost souls of Udon Kai's children. We are with you, warrior, Rama Bing spoke for them all. We will need a week and three days to prepare. Ten days from midnight we will storm the castle of the demon. The Batman bowed deeply. I will be with you, Rama translated. From now until then. The caped figure backed away from the campfire, never looking behind him. In less than a minute, he was gone. Four days later, a refrigerator white Land Rover slowly picked its way along a rocky mountain path. The four-wheel-drive vehicle's heavy-duty suspension and huge off-road tires were sorely tested by the broken terrain, but the driver was a veteran of many such passages. As the vehicle rounded a particularly sharp hairpin turn, two of the gorillas stepped out from cover, their rifles trained on the lone driver. Step down, now! The driver climbed out. The gorillas noted he was European, a chubby, middle-aged man with streaks of grey in his longish hair. I was wondering if I would ever find you, he said in perfect udon, his face illuminated by a sunny smile. I have a gift, a gift for Lily Bing. What is this gift? the gorilla spokesman demanded. See for yourself, the driver said, standing aside. The gorillas opened the rear hatch of the Land Rover. It was packed with neat wooden cases. Go fetch Rama, the gorilla who did all the talking told the other. I will stay here to watch this smiling dog. Ninety minutes later, Rama Bing walked up to the Land Rover and looked inside. Do you know what is in here? Sure, the driver said, still smiling. The question is, do you know? Ignoring the rifle pointed at his back, the driver reached into the back of the Land Rover and pulled out a metal tube about two feet long. What is it? Rama Bing asked, intrigued in spite of himself. This is a law, the driver said. 
Light anti-armor weapon. It fires a rocket that will penetrate a solid foot of steel. Weighs about ten pounds. Has almost no recoil. Anyone can use one. What do you load it with? Rama Bing asked. It is loaded, the driver replied. When you open it up, that arms the rocket inside. You can't reload it. You blast it off, then you throw it away. You use it, you lose it. Understand? You got an even dozen of them in there, he said, gesturing at the Land Rover. Now, once you get the walls down, you'll need some suppressive fire uh, to keep the enemy's heads down, right? Okay, that beast on the tripod in there, that's a fifty caliber machine gun. Plus, there's a pair of M60s, thirty caliber. You also have eight boxes of concussion grenades, one box of flashbangs. Over in the far corner, that long-tubed thing, that's a flamethrower. Have you brought any rifles? Rama Bing asked. I understand the objective is stone, yes, the driver replied. Inside such a structure, ricochet is a big problem. So we got your ten street sweepers, twelve-gauge short-stroke pump shotguns, capacities in even dozen rounds. The shells are three-inch magnums, but the double-aught buck has been replaced with very soft lead. If you hit someone, they're gone. But if you miss, the soft lead will just splatter against the wall, not bounce around. Is that all? Rama Bing asked, a trace of sarcasm in his voice. No, I also have some battlefield first aid kits, including morphine and penicillin. There is also... That is enough, Rama commanded. Who sent you? Uh, he never mentioned his name, the driver said with a smile. All I know is, when I was stopped, I was to say all the weapons are a gift. A gift for Lily Bing. The gift is from the warrior, Rama said to Opal. He works through others, but it is his work. Already he is smoothing our path to the demon. The moon shone full, bathing the land in cold, pale light. As the Batman watched from his perch, he could see the guerrilla units quietly deploying, readying the assault. The castle was, in fact, a magnificent house built from the native stone right into the side of a mountain so skillfully integrated that it appeared to be a natural outcropping. The Knight Rider's trained eyes picked out several guard posts, but he assumed the real defensive strength was inside the house itself. As the moon dropped behind a cloud, the Batman started his ascent. When he reached a purchase above the first guard post, the Batman pulled a six-inch tube from inside his cape. A flick of his wrist and the tube extended to three feet. His practiced fingers working effortlessly in the dark, the Batman fitted a needle-tipped dart into the tube, then put one end in his mouth. The Knight Rider's chest swelled to seemingly impossible proportions. He held the breath as he focused on his target, the exposed neck of the sentry. The Batman expelled his breath in one massive jolt. The dart zipped into the guard's neck. The nerve poison worked instantly. The guard crumpled to the ground. Three centuries later, the Batman was inside the house. He prowled the high ceilings, sensors on full alert. As he peered down into a large barracks-style room where dozens of men lounged about, a red light began to flash as a warning siren blared. The assault was on. Ignoring the onrushing soldiers, the Batman began to work his way toward the highest point in the house, some instinct telling him that his target would be there. He swung down from his perch and started up a narrow stairway. A tiny rearrangement of the shadows ahead warned him. He backflipped off the stairs just as a soldier fired a burst from an Uzi, stitching a row of bullet holes all along the wall. 
The Batman astonished the soldier by charging up the stairs. Before the soldier could recover, he was tumbling down those same stairs, head first. At the top of the stairs, a man in a red kimono stood quietly, radiating inner calm, a bamboo stave in his two hands. As the Batman approached, the kendo master began to twirl the stave, his bare feet noiseless as he moved into an attack position. The Batman locked eyes with his adversary and closed the space between them. The kendo master swept his stave from lower right to upper left, then suddenly stopped in mid-strike and reversed his hands, his powerful wrists driving the stave at the Batman's exposed neck. But the Batman whirled inside the arc and drove a spinning backfist into the other man's chest. Before the kendo master could recover, the Batman grabbed his opponent's ears and delivered a vicious headbutt. The kendo master collapsed like a punctured balloon. As the sounds of gunfire grew more audible behind him, the Batman continued to climb. The sounds of small arms fire filled the stone house. From outside, there was the occasional whoop as the rocket launchers did their work. At the top of the stairs, the night Rider eased a door open. Inside was darkness, a darkness so silent that the air itself seemed audible. The Batman drew a deep yoga breath to center himself, his hunter's instinct telling him that impatience could rob him of his quarry. When the night rider's heartbeat and pulse had slowed sufficiently, he closed his eyes to avoid sudden night blindness and moved ahead, now a part of the darkness itself. Less than ten steps into the darkness, the Batman's sonar bounced back the impression of a tunnel. Cautiously, he reached out with a gloved hand. The surrounding material felt rough to the touch. Was it concrete? No, the texture was all wrong. The Batman stood quietly, breathing deeply through his nose, focusing all his senses on the material. It smelled like, yes, a thick layer of cork. No wonder the place was so silent. Maintaining contact with the cork wall with his right hand, the Batman moved down the tunnel, his left hand extended, moving with the deceptively delicate gait of a true karateka. Forty careful paces into the cork tunnel, and the Batman saw a slanted sliver of light ahead, a corner of some kind. As he neared the light, the Batman felt a radical shift in temperature. The air ahead was hot and moist. As the night Rider moved forward, his senses became even more attuned to his surroundings. The slanted sliver of light grew closer, washing the walls with a dull illumination of diffused orange. The silence was broken by tiny sounds the rustle of paper, the hum of computer terminals. The Batman's gloved hand shot out, snatching the striking snake just behind its head. The snake hissed in rage, squirming in the Night Rider's grip, but the Batman held it at arm's length as he moved toward the light. The Batman peered around the corner where the light was coming from, the snake still in his right hand. He found himself on a catwalk, the metal railings barely visible. In the faint light, the Batman was able to determine that the snake was a greenish-yellow color, banded with another, darker shade of green. It was some sort of pit viper, obviously planted as an emergency sentry. That explained the heat and humidity change. Snakes cannot remain active in the cold. The Batman followed the catwalk until he came to another corner. Below was a circle of focused white light. In the circle was an elderly man who sat calmly smoking a pipe as if gunfire and explosions were everyday fare. To the man's right stood a state-of-the-art telex, a fax machine, and three computer monitors, all linked by cables to an industrial-sized laser printer. To the man's left was a giant globe on which a map of the world had been painted. The man held a telephone in his left hand. 
He was speaking calmly, but in the voice of one who is accustomed to instant obedience. It appears we are having some difficulty here, he said. Nothing we cannot handle, I am sure. It will take hours for the rebels to get in here. The only door visible to invaders is several inches of heavy-gauge steel. Uh, nevertheless, it might be prudent if my allotment of troops could be increased. Say, within the next ten minutes, damn it! The man slammed down the telephone receiver. Then he appeared to recover his composure and took another soothing puff on his pipe. The distinctive smell of opium wafted up to where the Batman lurked. William X. Malady, the kingpin of the organization which took his parents' life, he could be no other. The Batman's chest tightened, his fists clenched involuntarily. Only the faint sound of cracking bones alerted him. He looked at his right hand, now holding a dead snake. The Knight Rider dropped the snake to the floor of the catwalk and gathered himself for the final leap. But before he could act, the heavy steel doors at one end of the large room blew off their hinges. The seated man was frantically rooting around in a desk drawer when Rama Bing entered, a pistol in his hand. Put your hands where I can see them, he said in English. The seated man complied, once again apparently calm. Do I know you? he asked. My name would mean nothing to you, Rama Bing replied. Nor would the names of any of the children you stole. I am sure you don't. Be sure of nothing but your death if you make a wrong move, Rama interrupted. Your day is done now, William Malady. Your soldiers are gone. Only a few died. The rest ran like the cowards they are. What I want from you is your list. My list? Les enfants du secret. I need to know where they are, where the children are. My dear fellow, Malady said, you cannot seriously expect me to have such information. You are aware of how it works, I know. The children are sold. The stake is your life. If you have nothing to play with, so be it. The Batman watched, frozen on his perch, as the seated man spread his hands wide and spoke. You cannot alter the course of events, my young friend. You have seen my chop. Do you think you understand it? The Black Widow Spider? Yes, I understand it. The spider is poison, and so are you. No, you do not understand, he said, his voice silky with confidence. The spider is of no consequence. The true meaning is in the hourglass. Look closely. You have climbed a mountain, but you have only come to the middle of the hourglass. Do you understand? You can kill me, but you will have achieved nothing. Nothing at all. As long as there are those who sell their children, there are those who will buy. You are not at the top of a peak. You are at the base of a new mountain, one with even steeper slopes. Things have changed, but human nature has not. Don't you understand? This is a business, that's all. The business of evil. Whatever you say, words change nothing. I will tell you what does change things. Technology changes things. When I began in this business, it was necessary to have associates in order to produce the product. One needed film processors willing to look the other way. Distribution was so very difficult. The product itself was of low quality and could not be easily reproduced. Today, that has all changed. Any adult who owns a child, a parent, or, for that matter, anyone to whom a parent entrusts their child, anyone can make a perfectly commercial video in the privacy of their own home. 
what you would call child pornography, is a cottage industry now. The networks are all gone. I am an anachronism, a relic. To kill me would change nothing. You stole my lily. If it were not me, it would only be someone else, William Mallody said, his smile hideous with self-confidence. I understand you feel wronged, and I am completely open to the concept of reparations. I'm sure we can work something out. Believe me, my heart is heavy with the pain of... You have no heart. You are not a man. You are a peddler of children. The flesh peddler leaned back in his leather chair, a relaxed smile spreading across his face. My young friend, I understand your anger. Believe me, I do. If you will give me two minutes, literally two minutes, see that clock on the wall? I promise you I will change your mind. Speak, Rama Bing said, and speak the truth or it will be your last words. Malady began, but the Batman was no longer listening. Every one of his senses was tuned to the last sound he heard, the unmistakable sound of a round being chambered in a bolt-action rifle. The night rider leaped lightly onto the railing of the catwalk, balancing as easily as a pedestrian on pavement. Slowly he began to move in the direction of the sound, his eyes boring into the murky shadows. Another four steps, and the Batman's night vision picked up a glint of light. A sniper rifle, complete with telescopic sight, poised atop a tripod for better accuracy. As Melody's voice droned on below, the Batman bent at the waist and made a quick movement with his hands. Then he stepped back a dozen paces and dove off the catwalk, disappearing at the end of the bat rope he had lashed in place. The rifleman was peering through his scope, setting the crosshairs to rest precisely on Rama Bing's chest. He smiled to himself, knowing he had almost another full minute before his employer's time was up. Suddenly the scope's image went black as the Batman flowed over the railing from the darkness below. The rifleman was a killer, not a fighter. His mouth was still open in amazement when the Batman's fist took him right below the ear at the hinge of the jaw. The Batman turned his back on the unconscious rifleman and peered down. Now I must stop Rama Bing, he commanded himself, but he could not will his body to move. He watched the two men beneath him, frozen in time, as the young gorilla spoke. You have had your two minutes, liar, Rama Bing said. Please... Malady whined, fighting to remain calm, knowing his rifleman had failed, but not knowing why. Whatever one man steals, another man can return. Restitution can always be made. What you steal can never be returned, Rama Bing said, his voice a blend of all emotions. You stole my lily. You steal childhood itself. The Batman's body went rigid as unchecked emotions exploded within him. You steal childhood itself. The horror of that reality resonated within him, acid on the glass surface of his soul, forever etching a deep pattern of pain. His spirit trembled before the onslaught, vibrating at the perfect pitch to shatter the delicate crystal of a child's heart. The night rider staggered with the pain, clenching his eyes shut, shivering, nearly lost. For several horrifying seconds, the child within the Batman writhed in fear. Terrified, he called his mother's name. And when she answered, the warrior emerged. With a last deep shudder, the Knight Rider left his past and turned to face his future. Down below, Rama Bing raised the pistol, his face a mask of anguish. The Batman saw the young man's finger whiten on the trigger. He gathered himself, preparing to leap, but invisible hands held him at bay. 
He could only watch as... You took my lily, and now there is a new lily, Rama Bing intoned, his voice deep with finality. It may be true what you say. Someone else may follow. But you, monster, you will steal childhood no more. Rama Bing cried out as his pistol fired its message. William X. Malady spilled backward off his chair, dead before he hit the floor. The young man walked over to the body of the man who stole children. Another gorilla came through the door. It was Opal, a rifle in one hand. It is done, Rama, she said. We must go. The soldiers will be here soon. What of the warrior? the young man asked, still looking down at Malady. As the Batman followed Rama's gaze, Opal said, The warrior walks where he will, Rama. We must go back now. Rama stood seemingly rooted to the spot, still looking down at the dead man. Lily needs us, Opal said quietly. Slowly Rama nodded. He looked toward the heavens and saw the Batman looking down. The Batman bowed. Rama bowed in return. Rama and Opal walked together out of the monster's den. And the Batman, alone with the dead man's computer network, sat down to complete the destruction of his foul empire. Three weeks later, Alfred brought a carafe of water and some wheat biscuits down to the cave on a silver tray. I have more news to report. Ramud on Kai. Yes, the revolution continues to gather strength. What started with sporadic raids on centers of child prostitution has escalated drastically. It appears as though the rebels have been joined by some of the mountain tribes people. An utterly unexpected development. Many of the regular army soldiers have deserted, and General Num has fled the country. Our sources indicate that he traveled south through Thailand and left the area in an ocean-going yacht named the Lollipop. Have they been spotted? The Lollipop was blown apart somewhere in the Indian Ocean, Master Bruce. A Greek tanker was close enough to see it all. The captain of that ship reports that there were no survivors. The explosion literally blew the lollipop into bits. Is Udon Kai stable yet? No, Master Bruce. Although the rebels control the mountains, pitched battles continue in the streets. But the sex tourism business is as dead as its kingpin. William X. Malady. Yes. I understand how you feel about it, Master Bruce, but I could have stopped it, Alfred. I knew what Rama was going to do. I could have stopped it. No, Master Bruce. You could not have stopped it, or you would have. Accept it. Alfred, I... Bruce Wayne started crying softly. His faithful friend walked over to him and put a hand on his shoulder. The sex tourism business has been smashed, he said. Your mother is proud of you. You mean... She would be. I mean precisely what I said, Alfred said. Fighting evil is the same as fighting crime, only the focus is more concentrated. As you have often said, you swim toward the horizon. You will never reach the goal yourself, but that is of no importance. As you follow your mother's work, others will follow you. It is the soul of the true warrior to struggle so that others can claim the prize. Then the faithful Alfred walked away, leaving the Batman to his thoughts. Midnight in Gotham. A bat-shaped shadow soared high, the better to observe the depths below. The night rider looked with new eyes. 
the meaning of the Black Widow's hourglass now engraved on his soul. From above, the city's underbelly was clearly visible. In a luxurious brownstone, a boy who had dropped out of a prestigious prep school revised a suicide note on his home computer, a goodbye letter to the preacher who had taught him hypocrisy. In a nearby high-rise building, his sole sister looked down from the top floor, pregnant with her father's child, praying she would soon be as dead as her dreams. As he swung from one building to another, the Batman spoke across time. I understand now, Mother. The children of the secret are here, too. They are everywhere. The Knight Rider swept the scene below him with his eyes, zeroing in. He looked at the patchwork of lights that ranged from candle points to neon. They are all connected by a common evil, he thought. And someday, they will join together in a force powerful enough to shake this universe. Until then... Landing lightly on his feet outside a window, the Batman heard the child's sobbing protest, the guttural grunt of an adult. The information Deborah Kane had given him was, as always, accurate. He looked inside, saw the video camera poised on a tripod. In their name, the Batman cried deep within himself as he swung through the open window to face the ultimate evil. The Batman is a myth. The ultimate evil is not. The truth is in the following report by David Heckler, an investigative reporter and the author of The Battle and the Backlash, The Child Abuse War. Child Sex Tourism by David Heckler Child sex tourism is not new. For years, pedophiles, seeking to avoid severe punishment in the United States, have taken trips to countries where prostituted children are plentiful and sexual abuse laws are lenient or unenforced or, with the help of a bribe or two, easily circumvented. The subject crops up regularly in pedophile newsletters. One article that appeared in the Nambla Bulletin, the newsletter of the North American Man-Boy Love Association, rhapsodized about a 12-year-old Asian prostitute who, the anonymous author assured readers, truly loved his work. The writer went on to advise... Weigh the pros and cons of becoming involved yourself in sex tourism overseas. Seek and find love from American boys on a platonic, purely emotional level. For sexual satisfaction, travel once or twice yearly overseas. You might get arrested overseas for patronizing a boy prostitute, but the legal consequences of being caught patronizing a boy prostitute in a friendly place overseas will be less severe. There is evidence that many have heeded this advice. A pedophile was advised by friends to go to Asia, where thousands of kids were there just for the picking. He attended a Nambla meeting and afterward confided to a member, I want to go to Thailand, but I don't know how to set it up. No problem, he was told. I'll give you a contact who can arrange everything. A few weeks later, he was in bed with one of those children there for the picking. The pedophile made many more trips to Southeast Asia before he was caught. He is currently serving a 30-year sentence but he sits in an American prison for sexually abusing American children. He has never been prosecuted for his activities abroad. A convicted child molester, after his release from prison, enjoyed telling children in his neighborhood that the boys he had hired in Thailand charged only eight or nine dollars. 
He was considering moving there, he added shortly before he disappeared, to take advantage of that country's more mature cultural attitudes. Though child sex tourism is not new, only in the last few years has it been discussed in the mainstream media. As Chuan Pai, Prime Minister of Thailand, told an international conference on child prostitution in June 1994, this problem has not arisen just in the last year or two. It started long ago, but in the past it was not taken as a serious matter. The world didn't pay much attention to it. There was no organization working on this problem. There was no governmental policy, either written or spoken, regarding this problem. And there was no international traffic of prostitutes from one country to another. However, all these things have now occurred, and Thailand, like other countries in the region, must face the problem. One of the reasons Thailand was forced to confront this issue was the founding of the organization to which Prime Minister Chuan referred. The organization is ECPAT, an acronym for End Child Prostitution in Asian Tourism. Founded in 1991, within three years, ECPAT had established offices and support groups in more than two dozen countries. It chose to focus on four countries in Asia where the situation seemed worst, Sri Lanka, the Philippines, Taiwan, and Thailand. Thailand, where ECPAT is headquartered, has drawn the most attention. By all accounts, the rapid growth of that country's tourism and sex industries began in the 1960s. By 1993, one Thai professor estimated that the sex trade brought in something like $1.5 billion annually. The travel industry and the Thai government have overtly promoted sex tourism. When the Tourism Authority of Thailand dubbed 1987 Visit Thailand Year, its slogan was, the one fruit of Thailand more delicious than durian, a native fruit, its young women. In England, a travel brochure referred to Thais as Peter Pan's eternal children who have never grown up and the most sensual and overtly sexual people on earth. Promoting a trip to Pattaya, Thailand's major sex resort, the brochure added, If you can suck it, use it, eat it, feel it, taste it, abuse it, or see it, then it's available in this resort that truly never sleeps. Pattaya is not for prudes. Another promotion that was widely publicized appeared in the form of a postcard in an Austrian Airlines in-flight magazine. This advertisement contained an even more blatant appeal to pedophiles. From Thailand with love, read the caption on the front, illustrated by a drawing of a shiftless, prepubescent girl. The back of the card, signed by a group of supposed travelers, praised the cornucopia of sexual pleasures they were enjoying around town. Got to close now, the card concludes. The tarts in the Bangkok Baby Club are waiting for us. Just how many prostituted children are there in Thailand and the rest of Asia? There is no way to know. Child prostitution is at least nominally illegal in the country's ECPAT monitors, so there can be no official count. However, ECPAT has compiled what it considers to be conservative estimates based on the available information. The numbers are startling. 60,000 prostituted children in the Philippines, 200,000 in Thailand, 1 million worldwide. But ECPAT doesn't dwell on them. It has tried instead to reveal the people behind the statistics. In 1984, five young girls who had been imprisoned in a Thai brothel were burned to death in a fire. Later, it was revealed why they'd never had a chance. They'd been chained to their beds. The reality for children in Thai brothels, whether or not they are shackled, is that they are indeed slaves. 
Many are from small villages far from Bangkok. So many, in fact, that entire villages are devoid of young girls. Some are kidnapped by pimps or middlemen who sell them. In other cases, parents are tricked by brothel owners who promise children educational opportunities or attractive jobs in Bangkok. In still other instances, parents indenture their children by accepting loans against their children's future earnings, the nature of which the parents may or may not understand. If parents later suspect the worst, they rarely have the resources to locate and rescue their distant children. Once they are warehoused in the brothels, the captured children have this in common. Their lives are completely controlled by their employers, who often enforce their will with violence. For this reason, the term child prostitute is really a misnomer. These children have been prostituted, and the responsibility lies solely with their exploiters. For adults, prostitution may be a career choice, and some may call it a victimless crime. But for children in sexual servitude, there is no choice, and they are the victims. Aside from the psychological damage these children suffer, they face the increasing likelihood that they will be infected with HIV. AIDS is now sweeping across Asia at a pace at least as rapid as the virus took in its 1980 to 1985 race across Africa. World Health Organization officials reported in August 1994 at the 10th International Conference on AIDS, Thailand, for obvious reasons, has been particularly hard hit. Estimates vary, but a conservative guess is that at least 500,000 people were infected with HIV in 1994, and by the year 2000, the number will have soared to at least 2.5 million. Fear of AIDS has proved a windfall for child sex tour operators who, alert to the tourists' anxieties, advertise the youngest children as the safest. They assure nervous customers that the children have regular checkups and that you can't catch AIDS from a child. Neither claim is true. AIDS and the relentless siphoning of children from the villages have depleted the supply of prostitutes. This, in turn, has sent brothel owners scouring the region for fresh sources. The result has been trafficking across national borders. Human Rights Watch has exhaustively documented the kidnapping of Burmese women and girls who are deposited in Thai brothels. Ekpat has also noted parallel trails from China and Laos. Yet, even in the face of this reality, Ekpat points to evidence of progress. Sometimes this progress is measured in small increments. An article here, a conference there, a speech like Prime Minister Chuan's. Sometimes there are larger signs. Australia, Germany, and the United States have recently passed laws that allow prosecution of child sex tourists upon their return home. Norway and Sweden already had such laws on the books and have demonstrated a desire to use them. Still, it is far from certain that these laws will prove effective. Some of the staunchest supporters of the Australian law concede that it would be preferable for child sex tourists to be prosecuted in the countries where they commit the crimes. What's more, shortly before these laws were passed, there was optimism that Thailand and its neighbors would strengthen their laws and at long last enforce them. Prime Minister Chuan himself announced in 1992 that he intended to wipe out child prostitution in the next two or three months. Nearly two years later, at an ECPAT conference in Bangkok, the Prime Minister was forced to acknowledge failure. Once again, he declared his hope that he could eradicate child prostitution in Thailand while acknowledging, with surprising candor, what critics had been saying for years, that Thai officials not only condone child prostitution, but, in his words, some officials even sponsor this kind of business and share the profits. Despite such setbacks, ECPAT officials appear undaunted. 
Their plans include expanding the scope of their program to include Africa, Latin America, and other affected regions, providing direct support to local organizations working to heal children who have escaped from prostitution and to safeguard those at risk, convening an international congress in 1996 to seek ways to end child prostitution, developing a comprehensive database that incorporates new research. In general, ECPAT has chosen to avoid confrontation. It has pursued change by lobbying government officials and by educating the public largely through the media and through leafletting campaigns arranged with the cooperation of legitimate representatives of the tourism industry. ECPAT has also led a major push to secure U.S. ratification of the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. The United States, which helped draft the document, was one of only 15 countries, as of August 1994, that had neither signed nor ratified it. Ironically, even Thailand is a party of the convention. Not everyone is satisfied with ECPAT's approach or with the effort of the U.S. government, which so far has been limited to passage of the law that permits prosecution of child sex tourists when they return. Dorothy Thomas advocates a more aggressive campaign. Thomas is the Pittman Rights Watch project director who oversaw the investigation of trafficking of Burmese women and children into Thailand. Testifying before a House subcommittee, Thomas was sharply critical of the U.S. State Department's classification of forced prostitution in Thailand as discrimination rather than slavery or forced labor. This was, she explained, much more than a semantic quibble. The classification exempts this abuse from consideration under Section 502 of the Trade Act, which obligates the U.S. Trade Representative to review workers' rights when deciding which countries to designate as U.S. trade beneficiaries. A moment later, she continued, The State Department has documented the complicity of Thai police and border officials in trafficking of women and girls from neighboring countries into Thailand for forced prostitution since 1991. Meanwhile, the U.S. has and is continuing to provide police training and to sell arms and equipment to the Thai police, including the border police, without ever investigating their involvement in trafficking and forced prostitution. When there have been police crackdowns, the main target, Thomas said, has been the trafficking victims themselves. In virtually every case that we investigated, the women and girls were apprehended, while the brothel owners, pimps, procurers, and customers remain free. Moreover, despite clear evidence of official complicity and even direct involvement, we know of no case where a police officer was prosecuted for involvement in trafficking and forced prostitution specifically. At a minimum, Thomas argued, aid to the Thai police should be contingent on progress towards prosecuting and convicting culpable members within their ranks. Not only aid, she concluded, but also U.S. trade relationships with Thailand should be subject to the same vigorous concern for Thai official complicity in the traffic of women and girls. Demands like these have not been lost on Prime Minister Chuan, who by early 1993 had sensed a change in public perception. Prostitution in Thailand, particularly child prostitution, has reached a state where it is not acceptable to both the country and the international community, he observed. The prostitution problem also leads to other problems, such as international pressure not to buy goods from countries where children are exploited. A call for the boycott the Prime Minister so feared was trumpeted a few months later in an American magazine. The final paragraph was a virtual call to arms. Thai sex tourist trade is highly dependent on foreign patrons vulnerable to an international boycott. 
a concerted, organized, and well-publicized campaign against child prostitution, including a boycott of airlines, travel agencies, hotel chains, and others involved in tourism to Thailand, could have major impact. An international commission of Western notables holding hearings and investigating the violation of the rights of children could provide the necessary publicity to spark the boycott. To date, however, this declaration of war seems to have had no greater effect than Prime Minister Chuan's pronouncement that he would quickly end the problem. In fact, no one's words or actions seem to have had much effect. Child prostitution is more widely publicized than ever before, and more people are working to destroy it each year. But for the victims, precious little seems to have changed, and the promised end is nowhere in sight. A complete version of this report, fully documented, can be found in Batman, The Ultimate Evil, by Andrew Vax, published by Warner Books. For more information and what you can do about the situation, contact any of the following organizations. ECPAT, End Child Prostitution in Asian Tourism, 475 Riverside Drive, Room 621, New York, New York, 10115, or Human Rights Watch, 485 Fifth Avenue, New York, New York, 10017, or Don't Buy Tie, 328 Flatbush Avenue, Suite 311, Brooklyn, New York, 11238. Batman, The Ultimate Evil, a novel published by Warner Books, was written by Andrew Vax. This production was read by Tony Roberts. The executive producer was Maya Thomas. The producer and director was Kevin Thompson. The abridgment was made by John Whitman. The recording was made at Studio 300 in Chicago. The production was mixed and mastered by Paul Goodrich at Merlin Studios, New York City. This is a Warner Audio Video Entertainment production.